This is a becoming creature. During this episode, Goblin and I cover so much ground. You are just going to have to listen to find out. It was a ton of fun. We were just playing around like crazy, and I'm really happy to be able to put this one out with my good friend. Enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the creature that can't even goblin odds. Welcome, Gob. Hello. Or is it or, or is it Job like like Will Arnett in Arrested <laughs> Development? Finally, somebody gets it. No, no, definitely not. It's just Goblin. Um, yeah. Although I greatly respect that man and all magicians. Yes, he is a fantastic illusionist. <laughs> Sorry, yes, illusionist. <laughs> I, I don't I don't even remember what he goes by. But anyway, so you have like this persona. Like a lot of the people I've interviewed before, they have like some kind of shtick or something for me to talk to them about so like when i talked to harvey krishna it was all about um like volcanoes. psychedelics and yeah volcanoes <laughs> and right so he has like a brand your brand is like being playful and mischievous oh, but it's not, <laughs> okay yeah. i'm down it's not like that. i can be like so how do you play but um would you say like that your persona or your brand or whatever you want to call it was caused more by your immediate family growing up like did they motivate that or was it like friends that you were speaking to was it an online thing like oh you mean like my personality in general or like my i mean because i don't would you bring this whole goblin huh. thing <laughs> oh weird uh i think it, i think it's a combination of just trying to like be as uh real as possible i guess online mm -hmm. but also the added layer of like um not having to worry too much about coming across as like overly affectionate or whatever and then right. um yeah like giving less of a shit about the audience uh and also just picking up like absorbing memes from the local space so i definitely used to be like a face account who would type in complete sentences with punctuation and capital letters <laughs> and then um after a while especially following tipsy cake i like just abandoned all that in favor of like fun posting mm. on this topic you've said that you feel like you have to be very careful not to bore or offend normal people. And then you have to figure out what they want from you. So you're saying you're doing this personality thing or not even intentionally, but it gives you the space to um, not have to worry too much about your reader and you can be more genuine. Um, so I'm curious, like when you're thinking about normal people and like what they expect from you, and you, you feel like you have to play this game with them. My question is like, or else what? Because I'm kind of disagreeable, which I think allows me to do this. And I can ask people questions like, are you enlightened? And <laughs> that like, I don't mind that they like kind of squirm a little bit. Like that's fun. Um, so how does it, how does this feel to you? And it's like, or else what, if you don't just kind of like pander to their norminess? Uh, my guess is that it, it's more like built up from being in like Catholic schools forever. So there was always a sense in like elementary school, everything that you do in elementary school is going to affect 
what happens to you in high school, like the high school you get into because you have to go to a good high school. And then high school mm. will affect college and then college will affect your career. And then any interaction you have after that is going to be a networking related thing or whatever. And I, I don't know. I think I just like browbeat myself into um, complying with people from a young age and then forgot that like, oh, wait, I don't really have to do that. So I, I like make conscious efforts to uh, stop doing that where I can, but it's difficult to turn it off fully. Mm. Are you enlightened? God, fuck no. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but definitely not. Yeah, I think I'm just going to have to start asking everyone that just to find out, just to find out who is. Because actually, I recently spoke to somebody and they were like, <laughs> they were like, oh, you, you, you know, it was a really interesting conversation, but you didn't even talk about how I'm enlightened. And I was like, <laughs> You're enlightened. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know you were enlightened. This is maybe that's for episode two. So, yeah. It doesn't sound like something an enlightened person would say. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. But yeah, has anybody said yes when you've asked? Eigen kind of did. Okay, actually. A little. Mm -hmm. What he said was, I'm not sure a person gets enlightened. I think that they just tend to learn that they're not enlightened and then they just have to unlearn that like he said something like that i'm paraphrasing i guess like that makes sense to me if i'm thinking of it in terms of like just being comfortable and yeah. being able to be on like automatic mode all the time and it being fine i don't know i'm just i'm curious on people's takes on the whole enlightened thing what does enlightenment mean to you like what, what's your what's your take what does that mean I mean, I assumed it was some reference to something like Buddhism related where you yeah. just have like no material needs and are just like a vibe being that doesn't, mm. you know, that's just like now alien and on a different plane from people. And I'm not really sure how they feed themselves. Hmm. I never thought about this food aspect, but I think asceticism is probably part of it. Yeah. And they're just like, like a spirit bomb. They're just acquiring energy from the universe. <laughs> they just sit and meditate all day. And then people occasionally will like shove something into Feed their them. mouths <laughs> and then like remove their bedpan. It's like wireheading, but bedpan. like socially acceptable sort of. Bedpanning toward enlightenment. I, I like it. Uh, so almost a year ago, you tweeted that you'd be moving in with your boyfriend. You asked, what sorts of things others wish they'd known before they'd done that kind of thing. Was any of the advice that you can remember useful at all? And now that you've lived together, uh, how would you answer this question for other people that might be moving in with SOs? Oh, weird. Yeah, I can't believe it's been that long, but I guess it has. Um, yeah. I, I seem to remember the advice was like something to do mostly with giving each other space. Mm. Um which is a little difficult because we've been in like full lockdown basically yeah. <laughs> for the duration and we live in a studio apartment. Um, yeah. I don't know that it was necessarily helpful. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I'm not sure if I would even have any advice. I don't feel like I'm pro at this yet. It still feels very new. And um, mm. I think it'll be interesting to see how it is when we're interacting with the real world in a more normal way. If you don't have any advice, um, are there any difficulties that you're comfortable sharing that other people should be aware of? Shit, I don't know. I find like living with my boyfriend anyway is really easy. Uh, mm. If anything, I'm like, I want to, I don't know. I feel like this might be like an autistic object permanence sort of issue mm -hmm. where like I'm kind of clingy. And if we're not 
immediately interacting, I'll either forget that he's there or I'll be like, oh my God, does he not love me? Like what's happening, you know, because <laughs> he's like playing video games and I haven't seen him in five minutes. Mm. So, but I think that's just more of like a, an idiosyncratic thing rather than generalizable advice to anybody. Um, I guess the advice would be like, find somebody that you're just comfortable being quarantined with for a year. Like if that's hard for you, that might be a problem. Yeah. That whole, that whole psychology sounds like a cat. It's like, I don't need you. I don't need you. <laughs> are you don't you care about <laughs> yeah me yeah at all? i'll hyper focus for like six hours and have no requirements for attention and then as soon as i've stopped hyper focusing i'm like what happened i'm unloved so goblin's advice to other people is to be in a relationship with her boyfriend yes so that's just an open you open have to fight invitation. me first though <laughs> well that, that's fun that's like a it's like a video game so yeah. you uh you just tweeted like like just now you don't own anything if you can't destroy it <laughs> without a bunch of people threatening you. My read of own here is similar to how I think of like entitlement, but I also I, I feel like you're kind of ignoring the idea that everybody can like force anybody to do almost anything except for the threat of other force. Um, so how are you interacting with this idea of own or what do you mean? Are you subtweeting something specific? Oh, yeah. Let's see. I spent approximately less time than it took to type it thinking about this. Um, mm. It's something I've sort of thought about before, but then I, I think I realized that qualification. I used to think of it more in terms of like, um, if the government won't let you destroy it type of thing. But, you know, more realistically, it's like it doesn't matter whether it's a government. It could just be like a group of people near you. Um and then you get to the problem of like, okay, well, then can anybody meaningfully own anything? Because, yeah, anybody at any time could, you know, attack you or prevent you from doing something. So uh, I feel like it's very fuzzy. <laughs> I guess I feel like all definitions are very fuzzy, but it's roughly pointing at a thing that that most other people will sort of acknowledge your right question mark to do whatever you want with the thing. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I, I tend to think of it in terms of like how drug use is generally illegal. That feels to me like a clear kind of overstepping of any, I don't know. I don't see how you can have an idea of self-ownership if you can't put things in your body that have no effect on anybody or uh, mm. how something could be illegal if the only effect it would have on somebody else is like if you mentioned it to them, you know? Yeah. Like if I didn't tell a fed <laughs> that I was like ingesting whatever illegal substance and they had no other way of knowing, like how does it make sense for that to be the thing that causes it to be a Yeah, problem? it's like thought police. Yeah. It's like fe feels police. <laughs> right, exactly. You can't feel really, really good if this is the cause. <laughs> or really, really bad. Yeah. Like fuck you. It's up to me, damn it. Yeah. So to the degree that we're entitled to anything, my answer is like you're entitled to what you're experiencing in this very moment and that's it. It feels kind of circular. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I guess I feel this way about all words at this point. Right. <laughs> where it's just like, we're all just kind of roughly gesturing towards something. And if you were to really zoom in, you would find that the edges are really, really fuzzy and everything blends into everything else. And then it becomes senseless. And so you just have to kind of roughly agree with whoever you're talking to that you're pointing at the same thing. I refuse. <laughs> That's fine, too. <laughs> I think as long as both people know what's happening, you know, like if we both just adamantly refuse to agree on a like what ownership means, that's uh -huh. totally cool. 
you oh. see this in the Twitter feed sometimes where two people, you can kind of get the sense that two people are talking about two totally different things, but they're both having a great time. And I always see that as like the aim, like optimally everybody's communicating, but nobody's actually getting anything from it <laughs> and everybody's having fun. Yeah. If it's play, then fuck yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. But so many people do it and take it seriously and get upset about it. And it's just uh -huh. like, just pause and think for one second. I mean, I know not everybody is like a rationalist or whatever, but I think the, the mm -hmm. taboo your words blog post is one of the most valuable things that's come out of rationality, even though I never really see anybody use it, but it's helped me a lot personally, just like seeing these conflicts or starting to get into these conflicts and then realizing like, oh, we're not even talking about the same thing or there's no point in using this word because I will consistently interpret it differently from them, even if we clarify our terms. I haven't read this this idea, taboo your words. Can oh, you yeah. dig into that? Um, roughly, it's just sort of like if you come across a term where there's or, or any type of argument, I guess, that you're having that, that seems to hinge on a word like capitalism, I think, is a big one for this. Mm. Um, because it means so many totally different things to different people. Um, yeah. And even if you try to define it for each other, there's still you're going to end up arguing about what the correct definition is, or you're not going to mm -hmm. agree there. And so if you're just like, we're just not going to use that word, we're going to have the same conversation, but we're going to either use a placeholder word, or we're just going to describe what we're actually talking about instead of mm -hmm. using this cursed word that triggers our fucking monkey brains, then right. you can have a much more fruitful interaction. But it's hard to get anybody to do that if they don't already like buy into the concept of tabooing your words. Yeah, I find if you explore ideas a lot in writing, you just come to this conclusion naturally. Like if you want to write about capitalism by not saying the word capitalism, you're going to have a lot more success. Or um, I think my next piece is going to be on hubris. Everybody in the audience is now going your next piece. But I think my next piece <laughs> is going to be about hubris. But if I call it hubris, that's like so such a heavy loaded concept. Yeah that um especially if anybody has any biblical background it's it means like a very specific thing or a, a number of very specific things so um so yeah i i agree with that have you found any good ways to do this or is it just something you try to be aware of um i think so far the benefit has mostly just been realizing that like in order for it to be worth continuing a conversation, I would have to do this and get the other person on the same page, which usually mm. leads me to realize like it's not worth continuing this conversation. Um, right. Yeah. I don't, I can't think of any times that I've actually, you know, used the technique and we've both sat down and been like, we're actually going to taboo this word. Although it would be really interesting to do. Yeah. I'm thinking of Eigen's post where he just like has a list of things he's no longer going to have an opinion about. Yes. And it's kind of, it's kind of similar to that. Um, but it's also about like setting the boundaries of the game for people that you interact with regularly. Like, mm -hmm. okay, if we're going to talk about, you know, gender, let's just not use the word gender at all. Let's talk about the experience or, or whatever, or the interaction itself. Yeah. I've been trying to think about it this way with like a lot of group things like religion or like the police or government or whatever groups, I try to think about like, what's my interaction with the individuals or what's my potential interaction with the individuals so that I'm not fighting like this gray blob, the police officer that's pulling you over on the road, he has a certain amount of force or she has a certain amount of force. Um, but that's like one person you're interacting with. And I, th I feel like when you see every police officer as like the police, then that's so much scarier. 
you know? And I, I feel like this, you can just live all of life where you're only ever dealing with your, your, your concepts. And that's like a terrifying way to live. I have been toying with the idea of almost thinking of it in the opposite direction, which I'm not sure whether I endorse necessarily, but like anytime mm. I'm uh, inclined to think of like a group as a specific group, like the police or whatever, I, I just try to remind myself that like any group of people is a gang. They're all the same type of group putting different names on it doesn't really change that like maybe their behaviors mm. differ somewhat but like yeah i mean it mostly comes out of being um i guess a philosophical anarchist i don't really know like i'm much more low-key i think now about politics and all that stuff than i used to be but when i was trying to make everything consistent um i would stress out a lot about like what the government was doing and then it's like no okay the government is essentially a gang but so is like that sorority over there like they're right. just a group of people doing stuff now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we should stereotype groups more strongly than we already are. Interesting. Go on. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's totally tongue in that's totally tongue in cheek. I was not was not going to step on that landmark. I was I was hoping you would a, li a little bit. But so you created like this whole discourse around IQ. Uh, why do you care? <laughs> um. I think I care because it feels like a taboo and it feels like a weird, inconsistent taboo where the attitude among the smart people I know seems to be some weird combination of like, IQ is bullshit and doesn't matter, but also we can't talk about it. And like, if you bring it up, it's cringe. It's like, but it can't be both of those at the same time. Either it doesn't matter, it, which means it's like subject to being played with and it's a game, um, or it does matter and we shouldn't talk about it because of reasons that I would like to know. Um, which is why I tried to draw the connection between that and like the MBTI, even though obviously there are, you know, distinctions and like how you're treated or whatever. But like following this idea that it doesn't matter, then fuck yeah, let's play with it. Who gives a shit? It is weird. Even though it's self-selecting and you would expect that people that have the higher scores are more willing to talk about their scores. Like you can see this with the SAT, yada, yada. Uh, it's strange that everybody that replied to your thread was like within this band of like 135 to 145. Yeah, it's pretty spooky. Yeah, it's like if somebody was 125 or something, I would I would imagine they would say so. I would expect there wouldn't be anybody that was like 75 or, or 80 <laughs> or, or something. It, it would just be weird for them to find that that group. But I'm just thinking like. I guess it's possible that they're 140 or 145 and that maybe IQ is just like broken and it's not Gaussian or something. I actually don't know anything about this. Oh, how do you mean? Like maybe there are thick tails here. Like maybe 140s aren't as uncommon as people really think. And it's not something that's regularly even measured outside of, uh, do they measure it for the military? But I don't think they even measure it that accurately. They just don't want people that are like beyond the danger bands or something. <laughs> the danger, yeah. Uh, all of my pet theories now end up going back to autism. Uh, so, and, and I think a fair number of, it, it seems some people were tested in school, it sounds like, but mostly, mm -hmm. you know, like their teachers could tell they were really smart or yeah. that like they had some type of disability and wanted them tested. But most of the people who were posting was because they were clearly really smart. Um, so then it makes sense that like smarter people would be posting IQs because they're the ones who end up taking IQ tests in the first place. But also a lot of it is like, you take an IQ test as part of the autism assessment. And it sounds like maybe as part of an ADHD mm. assessment as well, um, which then also makes sense to me because it's like, you, it, it seems like autistic people tend to be divided into, I guess the majority is like uh, very low IQ 
who are not likely to be posting in like rationalist Twitter uh, or like pretty high IQ. Our group has people that are atypical, but in like these very specific ways. So kind of what you're talking about with like um, autism or ADHD, uh, we have a ton of people that are trans, um, lot more than I've seen in, in most other communities. Mm-hmm. Like, why are these specific attributes tied to, I mean, I guess everything was born from rationalism, right? And Yudkowsky or whatever. I, I'm too based to have ever read like Less Wrong <laughs> or, or Slate Star Codex. I'm, I'm just here, you know, with the uniform on. Hell yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know where any of this comes from. I'm, I'm sure somebody else does. Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess, it seems like it's just a, a neurotype that, you know, when you start finding each other, then <laughs> you stick together. And, and if there happens to be like a, a scene that's budding mm-hmm. around, like the way this neurotype happens to view the world, then you'll be attracted to it. I'm now wondering if my superpower is just being neurotypical in like in a community of people that are not neurotypical. Quite possible, but I also have a hard. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I could see you being neurotypical in the sense of like not autistic or whatever, but I, mm. you don't seem like a normal person to me. You seem way more. I don't want to say interesting because like normal people can be interesting, and I don't want to like hate on no, them they can't. too much. But, <laughs> but they they um, can only be interesting to the degree that they have suffered. That's such a bad take. You're trolling me, right? Eh, I don't. I don't know. I, don't I, I, I understand. I don't like, believe anything very strongly. Yeah, I kind of. I'm sympathetic to that take, and mm. it definitely is like intuitively feels kind of right. But I also think that it's not. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I'm just trying to get you to agree. Well, actually, you know what? Uber drivers are probably not typical people, but um, I've spent a lot of time in in like 45 minute long Ubers talking to Uber drivers, and my sense is that like. Every person you talk to can be interesting if you get them going on the right topic. Mm. So you've said that incest is eugenics. Please explain. Apparently, I stole that take from neoliberal, wait, neoliberal rat goddess. Um, Uh. Yeah. And I'd forgot that I'd read it. And then I maybe came up with it independently or fished it out of my like memory well. But yes. um, Yeah. Eugenics is also one of those like capitalist words or whatever where it means like completely different things depending on who Mm. you're talking to. But if you're talking about it in terms of like, you know, society controlling its gene pool, then banning any type of spawn producing sexual interactions is by definition (laughs) that like controlling your gene pool. So it seems to work well for most of nature. Banning it or (laughs) no, no. Oh, promoting it. Oh, promoting incest. Yeah. Oh, do tell. Well, like in nature, there's incest all over the place. Happens all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just assume that like, I don't know. Well, I I don't know what I assume. I don't know much about anything, come to think of it. Yeah, nature, there's not like a lot of uh, social mores that are preventing this kind of thing from happening. (laughs) Right. That I've seen, you know, like beehives, dog packs. The like sexual stuff I know about animals tends to be the the things that are that people recognize as deviant enough to be worth talking about. So like Adelaide penguins, and I don't know whether it's like most animals are like this, but nobody noticed, and mm. you know, or nobody wrote about it, or or if Adelaide penguins are actually like kind of exceptional in their like incest and rape and abuse behaviors. <laughs> I don't know anything about these penguins, so please do tell. Oh uh, my memory's a little bit rusty, but they're 
so first of all, I think they're when you think of penguins, they're like the archetypical penguin. Um, and some researcher went and studied them. I want to say it was in the 1800s, maybe like early 1900s. And the shit he saw was like so disturbing to him that um, I think he wrote about it in, I want to say in like ancient Greek or something, or maybe in code or whatever, so that it wouldn't be easily decipherable by like some random person. Trying to hide it from God. Yeah, like that type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And then I can't remember if like some people declined to publish it or if they kind of tried to keep it on the down low because it was just like too fucking disturbing. But basically like Adelaide penguins, any of the worst like sexual and social behaviors you can think of a person doing without opposable thumbs. And Adelaide Penguin is all over that shit. I got to read about this. I can't remember if it's just within a certain window. Like it might only be like a clockwork orange type of, you know, like, um, like adolescent males and then they chill out maybe, but don't quote me on that. Mm. It's a fun trip though. I hope Adelaide Penguins becomes part of my brand. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll make a thread. I think, Otters are depraved, too. There are lots of cute animals like that. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, I, I hope this is, like, actually the norm and we just <laughs> try to ignore it. Yeah. That would be that would be a pill. So why were cashiers your primary source of dates in your early 20s? That's a good question. Shit. I don't know if it's... Uh, was I sociable? I'm trying to remember. Well, outside of OkCupid. I think because I, I pretty much was just, like, looking for dates on OkCupid, not having yeah. any idea how to... Like I, I don't I didn't know what game was and I think I also just assumed that I wasn't likely to find anybody who would be interested in me or who I would be interested in just in yeah. the wild, you know? I could um, see you being a PUA. Yeah. No. <laughs> I would not put that much effort into it, but I definitely Posting like posting in red pill. Yeah. <laughs> um I was more about trying to weed people, but I think that's the advantage of like, you know, being perceived as female is like other people, the guys are gonna go after you whether you want them to or not, even if you're not particularly mm. attractive. So I think the thing with cashiers is just that you have uh like an easy opportunity to gauge their interest level. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that I'm particularly good at reading people, but I noticed this this thing that seemed to happen a lot during this like very narrow window in my 20s um yeah where like guys would make googly eyes at me which i'm pretty sure was just them making prolonged eye contact Um, (laughs) looking for your credit card (laughs) (laughs) yeah right like waiting for you to hand it to them (laughs) (laughs) it is the sort of thing where normally i would dismiss it as like okay you're just imagining this or like you're misreading it but then it would be like the guy would make googly eyes at me and then give me a an employee discount on whatever it was you know that type of thing uh-huh. like every time i'd go so yeah, at that yeah. point i kind of was like oh this might be that flirting thing or that like weird shy boy interest <laughs> i don't know <laughs> this mysterious flirting thing people talk about yeah yeah i still don't really understand that i can pretty much only flirt with people that i um am not attracted to and don't mind making feel bad mm. that makes sense why uh i think it feels dishonest that might actually just be it. So you're saying that like you're more comfortable flirting with people you're not attracted to because <laughs> yeah. people that you're not attracted to, you're like less sensitive about their feelings? That's probably what it is. Um, I think uh. it's like also it has to be – I think I've only ever flirted with people who feel like they're out of my league so they would not be interested in me and I'm not mm-hmm. interested in them. And so I can make fun of them without them feeling badly because they're like at some higher level where they wouldn't be offended, even though this is bullshit. And like, I've been reliably informed that leagues don't actually exist. <laughs> like, 
that seems to be the process happening in my brain. But it's I've only done it a couple of times, I think. So I wasn't sure what to ask you most of the time. So I thought up this handy solution. Oh. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a study by the psychologist Arthur Aaron and others, which explores whether intimacy between two strangers can be accelerated yes. by having them ask each other a specific series of personal questions. I have heard of this and I've been wanting to try it. Yeah, you're not going to ask me. I'm just going to ask you. So oh, you're gonna not going to answer them, though? <laughs> nope. It's going to be totally parasocial. Great. Great. Okay. Because we're well, both seeing people, so I, I got to make sure this doesn't stick. That's true, but it could be like friendly intimacy, right? Surely. Yeah. Or is it only romantic? Is it only supposed to be for no, romantic No, it's true. Intimacy? Maybe maybe this is our becoming best friends. Oh, my God. But we can we can both we can both ask. I can pause and you can pull up the questions. That'd be fine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what did you say the guy's name was? So, yeah, so there are 36 questions and three sets, and then I figure we could just bounce around and ask whatever you, we want. Sure. Yeah, I'm looking at the questions. I'm like, I'm too autistic for this shit. <laughs> we could try it, though. But, yeah, we could just we could just make it work. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, there aren't any rules. Life's, life's just a, a made-up thing. That's true. Time is not real. Okay, <laughs> so, so given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? Yeah, so that was the one that I was looking at, and I was like, I'm too autistic for this, because I was like, well, do they have to be alive? Like, am I, what? Like, is it? You just got to feel, about... feel through the answer. Am I thinking practically in terms of, like, who would I want to, you know, who would I not be uncomfortable trying to feed? Like, uh, my, my like, knee-jerk cash reaction is Oscar Wilde, because, like, he seems, like, fun. But I don't know if that's, if I actually got to think about it, if that's who I would choose. Actually, living people, Camille Paglia, 100%. I love her and I just want her to talk at me for like four hours. Why is that? Just like her vibe? Yeah, she's got a really good vibe. I really like the way she thinks about things. She's very like, I guess like edgy and playful, but also mm -hmm. has some good insights. Um, she just seems like a good time and she's kind of hot. So that's always a bonus. Also, she's like kind of an idol, you know? I'm just like, I would like to be as cool as her. Yeah, she seems pretty powerful. My answer is going to be Jesus Christ because I would say he's technically in the world and he's actually like literally in the world that he's buried under the ground. Good point. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think I think it's a literal answer and I think it's it's a good answer. I would want to meet him when he was like 31 though. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. He was like roaming around teaching things for like 3 years and then he died. So, he had he did a lot of stuff in 3 years. It's pretty impressive. It's a narrow window. But yeah. so, so you're saying you don't want like the relics of his of the Jesus bones just sitting yeah, on your table. You want like revivified, like prime of his life. I would prefer stigmata free. Ripped Jesus would be ripped my, Jesus. my choice. white boy summer Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you can ask a question. You can just pick pick whatever. Well, oh shit. Well, now I gotta look at these. Oh, before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say and why? I used to do this. Um, I I used to like think about what I was gonna say, and I was I was kind of very serious. Like sometimes I would even write down bullet points because um, usually if I was gonna have a phone call, I wanted it to be brief because I felt a lot of anxiety about it. Now I don't care at all. So wow. if someone picks like is talking to me on the phone. I just assume it's their obligation to say something interesting and I could just hang up. It doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> Even for like dentist appointments? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Wow. 
you really have ascended. Yeah, I have no, I have no anxiety on the phone anymore. Um, and this is a big shift for me, actually. I, I didn't even used to speak to girlfriends on the phone. Damn. Like if my mom called me and I was in college, I'd be like, hey, how's it going? All right, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> like I really, I was very non-phone. And now I'm talking to this girl and, and we talk on the phone like two or three hours every night. And, and it's, I'm totally cool with it. So yeah, I've had a big shift. Um, I guess I experienced a lot of anxiety when I was younger and now I experience no anxiety. I can't tell you what anxiety feels like anymore. Shit. Did, uh, was there like an epiphany or was it a gradual change or, was, or do you think it was just like a hormonal shift and like, I'm an adult now, magic has happened? It was a gradual shift and then it was a sudden change. So oh. it was, um, I would say I probably did 80% of the work through meditation and like awareness and being present or whatever. And then when I realized time isn't real, then boom, it was gone for good. Was that recent? Because I know you've been posting a lot about time recently, but yeah, oh, that shit. was yeah, that was like three months ago. Something Fuck! Like Congratulations, dude. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So it's cool. Yeah, I just, I literally like everybody's gonna be like, oh, he's full of shit, which is fine. Like people can, it doesn't make me anxious for people to say that. But yeah, I just don't really like. I can tell when my heartbeat's increasing, or I can like see tension in my body and stuff, but I don't experience it as like a negative affect. I just go, oh, there it is. That's cool. That's awesome. You know. So what about you? Do you have any of this experience about telephone calls? Oh, yeah. I 100%. If I have to do, not necessarily like if I'm talking to a friend or anything, but if I'm, um, although I've been tempted, but if mm-hmm. I'm doing like, you know, calling the dentist or, or anything like that, I have to write it down because I will forget um, or I'll start like stumbling and rambling or whatever. And, you know, you could mm. just like hear the person on the other line getting confused or impatient. <laughs> and I'm just like, fuck. So yeah, I hadn't thought about trying to transcend that. I just kind of figured that's just, you know, a quality of, of having a poor memory and or not being interested enough in the details of appointments making to be able to retain that in my short term memory. Yeah. A thing I used to do in regular conversation is talk over people um, as I just did to you. But I usually did it because I, w- I was worried I was going to forget what I was whatever I wanted to say. And I just felt this strong unction to say whatever I was going to say, like it was important. But I, in fact, no one ever has anything important to say, which, <laughs> yeah, so I just let it go. Some of this just feels like, like aging, not giving a fuck kind of energy. Like I've noticed that about Could philosophical be. questions in the past few years. I used to be like so into philosophical questions and like, if you don't want to talk philosophy, I don't want to talk to you. And now I'm like, I feel yeah. like I've thought about all of them and none of them matter and I don't care. Yeah. Meaningness is quite the pill on, in this regard. I think that like, it's a great um, place to start with David Chapman. He's really oh, good. It's a blog or? Yeah. Yeah. It's a blog. David oh, Chapman's okay. awesome. Cool. Um, but he talks about, he, he comes from like a somewhat buddhist taoist background where he's very very well informed and all of that and he kind of does this whole taboo word thing you're talking about so instead of saying all of the buddhist and hindu and taoist words or whatever he just calls it like a stance or something and it's actually really informative it's really cool Uh, i recommend just browsing it is there like a like a greatest hits list or anything like that yeah I'll, i'll put something together for you but I love the greatest hits, like top five. Like if I'm ever on Reddit, I'm just going to only browse like top all time. That's it. You don't sort by controversial? <laughs> I'm not that cool. <laughs> I'm not into drama. Okay, I think I, I have to ask you a question. Um, 
When did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? Um, I feel like I'm pretty constantly doing that. I've probably been humming. I've been playing a lot of The Witcher 3, so I've just been humming uh, the soundtrack all around the house. And How does it go? Oh, no. Well, the one I've got stuck in my head is like the da-na-na-na-na-na-na, da-na-na, da-na-na. It's not very exciting, but that's what's in my head right now. Yeah, that's now my outro music. So thank you for that. Excellent. Glad to yeah. provide. <laughs> that's just every episode, episode 120. <laughs> just awkward, <laughs> aimless humming. Yeah. Just on repeat as I do like my outro. You can, you can subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com. I want to be disappointed if you don't do it. When I'm at work, actually, um, I like to sing. We, we play music and I like to sing. And yeah. if I'm alone, like if I'm cleaning at work and I'm alone, I'll dance. And like everybody could see me, but I'll just clean <laughs> Hell and yeah. dance. And I don't, yeah, I don't really care. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty baller. I have to believe that other people appreciate that. Yeah. Unless they're dead inside. Yeah. It's definitely a kind of weird flex. Like <laughs> yeah. Being the only person <laughs> dancing is definitely a flex on everybody else. So that's my life. They're just too cowardly to join you. It's true. Sometimes I'll even dance when my coworkers are around, but that takes a, a kind of drunken confidence, that that type of vibe. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll ask you one. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you've dreamed of doing for a long time? Why haven't you done it? Um, well, I've been single for a while, and so I'm I'm talking to this girl now, and things are going well, and we'll see where that goes. But I've, I guess I wanted to be living with someone for a while now just because i feel like it's just so cool to have like that support system and some stability and have someone that you're kind of sharing obligations with this person that's available to listen to you in a kind of way and and interact with you i feel like that that regular interaction is nice to have even if it is difficult sometimes um, so I haven't had that for a while, so I really wanted that. And as far as actually like doing anything of merit, I have wanted to have some regular writing coming out that had a bit more polish than what I'm doing on Twitter. I have not done that yet. I have been blogging a little bit in the form of letters to this girl to which I keep referring to, but not naming. Oh, cool. But um but yeah, so we're sending letters to each other, quote unquote, in public, but I have not released that. Uh, like something that you would post on a blog or how do you mean in public? So so it's currently on a blog, but I haven't like shared it oh, publicly on like Twitter or cool. anything. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I will, but I kind of want to have a body of work before I share that. It's also somewhat personal, even though we're just kind of like writing to each other about ideas or things we like and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, so they're not like just lovey letters. But um, but I yeah I, I like I like the concept. It's kind of like uh, the Vlogbrothers. <laughs> I'm not actually familiar with that. Oh, the Vlogbrothers. That's uh, John Green and Hank Green. Oh, John Green wrote Fault in Your Stars yeah. or something. Yeah. But before that, for like 15 years, they just did videos where they would like talk about books or science or all these cool things. And um, the main downside of it is they have so many videos that it's like actually impossible at this point to consume them all holy shit yeah but but they're they're really genuinely good and and interesting and um john green also has a a podcast called anthropocene reviewed where he just rates things on a five-star scale like um like chlamydia or 
uh, like random books or like the smell of grass. And it's really just somewhat like a memoir, but it's really beautiful. And I actually very strongly recommend it. And the episodes are quite short. Yeah. Oh, so like a whole episode will be on chlamydia. Yeah. Well, it's like 12 minutes on chlamydia. And then the other half of it will be like Abraham Lincoln or something. (laughs) All right. It's it's, it's a really cool show. (laughs) So what's your answer to that question? I think, yeah, for me, it's probably a writing thing or uh, I guess a part of why I haven't done it is because I can't settle on the medium and I have a, there are just too many options. I get crippled with like how many options there are and I don't feel like Mm -hmm. I have anything to say in particular. I just want to make a thing. So name three things you and your partner have in common. I think this is supposed to be me and you, but you can, you can make it you and your actual partner. The first thing that came to mind was an interest in Gunpla. Uh, we mm. like building miniatures and that type of thing. That's cool. Um, yeah. I think like a discomfort around most people is probably a big similarity or commonality or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what's a good third thing? Uh, I think we both like fucking with people in a certain way or like, I guess pushing boundaries, but in a very specific juvenile, just like by saying gross things way, or I I don't know how to describe it, but just like some of the stupid tweets that both of us have made about like, I don't know, balls or whatever. Or I think one time I tweeted about like, um, shoot, what was it? Something like it's not true love unless, you know, unless your boyfriend teabags you when you're on the toilet. But is it that you mostly screw with one another or is this an other people thing? Um, I think it's like, we're. I think what it is is like we both wish that we had the balls to do it to other people, but we don't want to upset or like hurt anybody's feelings type of thing. Mm. So we mostly do it to each other or just generally online, you know, just to the world. Yeah, I, I think we both kind of think that we're edgier than we are. <laughs> that sounds fun though, especially yeah. if you can just execute every once in a while. Like, for instance, you could ask out a cashier and then just, like, make fun of them for saying yes because you're actually already taken. Oh, God, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, like, what I would do. Damn, brutal. I, I think uh, the most brutal stuff is the most entertaining, so you just got to go with it. Well, yeah, certainly yeah. for the viewer. Shit. But when I was in college, I used to just go around telling fake stories about how I broke up with my girlfriend. <laughs> Oh, fuck. Just so that, like, people that were around, like, me and my friends would just be mortified. <laughs> and I would just try to think of, like, the most terrible breakup story that would be possible. And we would, so we would just, they would just be empathetically listening to me and be like, hey, man, it's okay. This kind of thing happens. And then there would be girls that would come up to me like, me. Well, <laughs> we what's like, an example of one of these stories? jeez. Oh, my boss might be listening to this. Um... <laughs> But okay, so I'll I'll give you one. But like once I was on the line for the cafeteria or whatever, and I said that I recorded a sex tape with me and someone else that was dated a month prior to the breakup. And then it was like a gotcha thing where like the she would press my buttons or something. And then I would be like, oh, yeah, well, then I did this. And then it was just like the most (laughs) brutal screwed up like way to win an argument of all time oh like like you're having an argument and then you're like well i just recorded a sex tape yeah with someone else a month ago yeah yeah (laughs) here it is (laughs) 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 holy 
holy shit. Yeah, I was I was pretty messed up when I was in college. <laughs> I was really big into telling what fun lies. I don't know why that reminds me of a, a friend I had in college who was like um like wheelchair bound and uh-huh. you know, had some I forget, some type of like um is it a congenital illness or, or something where, you know, you can like visibly see that somebody has had like a hard life and that something is really wrong with them. Mm. Um, and so I expect he probably got a lot of pity from people and wasn't thought of as like a sexual person or whatever. So what he would do is, uh, uh. And, and he looks and acts like a total sweetheart. But what he, he told me he would do is he would um, like roll up to a girl at a cafe and then hand her a card and then roll away. And then she would look at the card, assuming that he had given her his number or something. And it would just say, like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> just incredibly based. Yeah, like one of the very funniest, cute. most fucked up people I know. He's amazing. That is awesome. Now I'm going to answer this. this these three oh, yeah. questions or whatever about me, me and uh, this mystery girl. But, um, okay, so... I would say we we both studied economics and we have that mentality of kind of like analytical, looking at things from a variety of sides, um, not settling on any one interpretation, recognizing that the world is fuzzy, um, all, all these useful ways of thinking that kind of cause a lot of, I think, economics people to end up in law or, you know, or nothing at all which seem to be the two popular routes. <laughs> but so we, yeah, we tweeting have, a lot. Yeah. Right. Tweeting a lot. And then um, we're both very relationship oriented thinkers. So we think a lot about in terms of like, whether it's friendships or family relationships or romantic relationships, we think a lot about interactions, I guess, from an intellectual point of view about like the dynamics and we're both pretty romantic so um, we say very affirmative things to one another and we say things that like if anybody else read them they would be like oh this is this is just gross (laughs) (laughs) this is i didn't know people actually did this outside of television and movies Um, that's adorable yeah so i would say those are the, the three most common things i feel like the only people who think that type of thing is gross are people who are not in a relationship at any given moment you know mm. like i always thought that shit was disgusting like i fucking hated pet names i didn't understand yeah. it until i started dating somebody who used pet names and now i'm just like yeah, yeah totally cute totally normal huh <laughs> they're so fun like you can get creative with it yeah. like i like i called her like a pumpkin spice latte because she's she's hot <laughs> and people already say pumpkin but yeah i think it's just you can be fun with it you know why yeah. not i like the insulting ones personally but yeah yeah only if they're a little bit, they have to be a little bit insulting, but mm-hmm. like a lot of, a lot of affection. Yeah. So now it is your turn. I haven't done this back and forth question asking thing since I was just very bad at dating. On Did like, you have note cards? No, no. <laughs> I always wanted to like bring note cards to a social thing because it just seemed like a good idea because I can never think of anything to say. I always just wanted to treat it like in my mind as an actual interview. Like people do the whole <laughs> going on a date and doing an interview. I wanted to make it official. Um, I never Hell did yeah. this when I was dating, but I really just wanted to have like a piece of paper and just be like, okay, so uh, what's your credit score? <laughs> you should like, do that go down with the your, with the, the girls that you're talking to. <laughs> you should do this on your podcast to have your dating interview with her. Uh, I've, I've, thought about, I've thought about having her on. 
Um, I don't know how I would do it. Maybe, maybe down the road, maybe down the road. We'll see. I don't think yet. Not yet. Okay. Soon. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. Soon. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right. That reminds me though. I once went on a date with somebody who at the end of the date asked me a question that I think would only have occurred to them because he must have, like, I didn't meet him through OkCupid, but it was very clearly one of those highly specific OkCupid questions. And he asked it out of nowhere. Like, do you like to drink beer? Do you oh, like no. horror movies? <laughs> I think it was, um, which upsets you more, animal abuse or child abuse? Hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's an OkCupid. Yeah, it was definitely an OkCupid question yeah. because I was on OkCupid at the time. And I was just like, mm. what the fuck are you saying to me right now? <laughs> yeah. It's also like a pointless, it's like a pointless question, right? I could see it being interesting if it's like you're in the middle of the date and you don't have anything to talk about. So you start asking each other stupid questions. Yeah. But this was like literally as I was leaving. It's kind of, I can only see this question coming up of a girl was like, so yeah, so I'm thinking about, you know, I, I want to have a family. I want to have kids. And then he goes, yeah, kids are cool, but I kind of, I'm kind of less into animals getting hurt than children. And then her being like, what? <laughs> what? Maybe it was just the most important question and he finally had to spit it out. At the time, I was just thinking, like, did he see me on OkCupid, but then, like, not want to admit that? Is that why he, like, what is, what? Yeah. Yeah. It was very bizarre. When I lived in New York City, at one point, I dated this girl. And then the next girl I dated was her manager. And it was (laughs) just totally, (laughs) just totally happenstance. Just totally random uh in new york city of all places is that what you call mogging on someone i don't know but it was uh wait how did you find out i had mentioned like oh i actually i used to date somebody that went that worked at your your uh, business and she was like who and i and i said and and she was like oh yeah she's my employee oh (laughs) god Uh, how did she react was she just like that's hilarious or <laughs> well like most dating in new york city didn't go anywhere but um oh yeah but yeah she i think she if she had any kind of reaction she hit it well but yeah it, it was strange dating in new york city i mean i could i could have a mini series where i just talk about that it's very strange you should yeah is new york like what it's like on television are you from there originally also I lived there for a few years. I'm ah. I'm not there anymore. The thing about New York City is like there is a vibe or a feeling that you can't really describe. Like people are like, oh, the energy, blah, blah, blah. But it's not it's not really the energy. It's it's something else. And the something else is that there's this transition that you're always experiencing. Because if you're downtown and you walk to Harlem, which is something I used to do all the time because it's quite nice and pleasant, you're just going through all of these different locales and it's kind of like the feeling of passing a restaurant where there are people eating outside there's just this positive emotion you get from doing that but you're just chaining all of those experiences together and passing people that just seem very interesting or or dressed a certain kind of way and it's there's just so much variety it's it's kind of like being in a bookstore but at scale Um, where you're just surrounded by like cool stuff all the time. And I don't know, it's a very special feeling. And when you live there, it feels different from when you're visiting because you literally just walk outside and that's your backyard is all of this. 
So it's, yeah, it's, it's not possible to really describe how it feels to live there for months on end and just for that to be your norm. Um, but it's, it's really special and I, I would like to go back. I really enjoy it. Um, but who knows? It's, Sounds it's expensive. Great. It's hard. Oh yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah, it is. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the favorite place you've ever lived? Uh, Berkeley. I mean, I haven't, I've only lived here and you know, I went to school like up there. So, um, mm. yeah, I really like the Bay area cause of the weather mostly, Yeah. but also it is, I mean, obviously college town is really walkable. Well, maybe not all of them, but Berkeley is very walkable. Um, so that was fucking amazing of course. But, um, I don't know, like San Francisco had, I mean, I didn't go that often, but that actually felt like a city. Like I live, well, I live in Burbank now, but I grew up in LA and that does not feel like a city. It's just like flat and spread out and no tall buildings unless you go to very specific areas, which are mostly disgusting and most people do not go there. So so one of these questions is what is your most terrible memory? And I'm not going to ask that question. That question oh, okay. should not be on... <laughs> <laughs> this list that's a terrible question to ask to get to know somebody and uh but i will ask a similar question and that's like when did you feel the most insulted or offended uh i was talking to i was at my ex-boyfriend's place and we were talking to his roommate um who was like she was dating around and stuff. And I think she was asking us advice about what to do about some guy that she wasn't really interested in. And she kind of wanted to ghost him or whatever. We were both kind of telling her like, don't ghost him. It's rude and unnecessary. You're an adult, whatever. Mm. But um, I forget exactly what I'd said to her. <laughs> I think it was like uh, something to the effect of like how much better dating would be if people were just straightforward about all the things. Um, right. And I feel like I must have said something more ridiculous sounding than that. Uh, but yeah, what was it? Um, whatever it was, it was, I guess it must have sounded really autistic or whatever. But she basically was just like, yeah, you only think that because you're you. And the way she said it was just mm. very obviously, you know, because you're some weirdo who has these like stupid logical ideas and nobody thinks like, yeah, it was like. It was contemptuous and it also just felt like blatantly incorrect because I was convinced that my way made, made way more sense. And now that I'm like older and more experienced, I'm kind of like, all right, I guess I get it if people want to have their subtext and their like body language and whatever. But um, yeah, I think it, it was just sort of like a very explicit version of something that I would felt like people had been thinking or saying to me since I was a kid when I was very convinced that like, I'm the only one thinking about this remotely rationally and you guys are just bumbling around hurting each other all the time. Yeah, that hurts. Um, most insulting thing. I, I can think of a lot of <laughs> tiny petty things. One of the most offensive things or one of the things that upset me the most was when a friend violated my trust in them by um, I had told them something sensitive and I had requested that they they not tell somebody who may be affected. And they told them anyway as a kind of like joke. Ooh. And yeah, I was really like offended. But I, I'm kind of proud of that moment because he saw how upset the other person got. And I told him, I was like, what you're doing is like potentially destroying my relationships. Now I take a at this point, I take responsibility for like w everything I did. And I should not have been putting the responsibility of like not telling
telling people truth. At this point, I recognize mm-hmm. that. But at that time, I was just like, hey, man, I don't hate you. Just don't talk to me. <laughs> like, like I was like, Solid. I need some space. Yeah. Yeah. I was just very upset. Um, but there are other times like uh, in high school, an upperclassman uh, like cut in front of me in line and <laughs> I just pushed him out of the line and I was like, hey, uh, sorry, but the line starts back there. Fuck yeah. And, and and so like we almost came to blows but i was like it's the freaking lunch time like i don't care i had exactly the same experience in like seventh grade except mm-hmm. that i am I probably at the time i was probably under five feet tall and the guy that i was trying to stop from cutting was probably close to six feet tall at that point and was also that if we had a class bully it was this guy and so he just kind of shoved me and then ignored me but i was just like fucking enraged yeah. And also kind of ready to fight him. It's crazy how ready to go and riled up you can get. But I feel like when you feel that way, if you try to push it down and ignore it, that stuff haunts you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. If you if you feel really, really angry or pissed and you do nothing about it, you will remember that for the next 20 years. Oh, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you even if you even if you get hurt or whatever, it's like when you feel that way, you got to honor that part of the animal. Um, you know, because, th- th- you know, there are like this, this whole pecking order dynamics where if you eat it, the animal is like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm actually lesser than it. I think that ripples through your entire life. Damn. Um, so I would say, you know, people stand up for yourselves. Yeah. You're making me you wish know? I'd gotten into a fist fight with a guy who is like two feet taller than me. Here's the thing <laughs> is that, okay, so I'm six foot three. And as far as this lunch line is concerned, I wasn't very heroic. I was taller than the guy. Uh-huh. Because I was six foot three at, at age sixteen, Holy shit. <laughs> and yeah, I was I was a pretty big guy. But for some reason, because I was big, people thought I was like a cool target because they kind of uh. knew that if I if I responded, that I would probably get blamed for the interaction, you know, because of the po- power dynamics. Yeah. Well, if they take you down, then they look good. Yeah. And if you seem like a nice guy, then it seems potentially easier to take you down and still look good. And if they lose, they don't really lose that much face because it's still like, oh, hey, I lost to that guy. So it's like I'm kind of brave anyway. I've heard this from a couple of tall dudes or guys who were tall in high school. And so people were often kind of just, I guess, testing, testing my limits. And I very quickly learned that like you have to just say what you're going to do and what the consequences of certain actions will be. And then you have to stand behind that. And that's a really excellent way to actually just build self-esteem to just be like, if you touch me again, this is going to be the consequence. And then you just follow through. That makes sense. Yeah. I I think if you don't do that, if you're constantly moving the boundaries and just trying to um, make everybody happy or whatever, then you just slowly lose your self-esteem. <laughs> Why well, am I having flashbacks to Master and Commander? Have you seen that movie? I saw it, when I guess, when it came out. Oh, dude, so yeah, was... like 2003. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I highly ago. recommend rewatching it, but there is mm. definitely that dynamic in the film where there's the character who's, who's the Jonah. Everybody thinks that he's like the bad luck whatever guy and he needs to get off the ship or die so that he doesn't kill them all with his bad juju. And he's absolutely the guy who like, He's promoted higher than he should be, mostly because they feel bad that he's like old and he really should be at a higher Mm. level. And he does not have the balls to stand by anything he says. And he ends up killing himself because he's just like can't handle being bullied by his inferiors. It's sad. It's pretty fucked. Um, 
this question is not on the list, but I think it's interesting. So I'm going on a vacation with uh, this this girl I keep referencing, <laughs> and we're thinking of like just media we may want to consume. Ooh. So we're we're bringing like a Nintendo Switch. I was wondering what shows or movies do you think new couples should watch together? Damn. That's a highly specific, like, or, or personalized question, I think. Sure. Um, I guess I would, in general, go for whatever the nichest, weirdest, most fucked up thing that you think both of you would enjoy is the way to go. Things that you think that mm. you would enjoy that most other people wouldn't, if you can find them, that's, like, ideal. And it also maybe depends on the type of vibe you want to cultivate, like, uh, extremely good hack for creating an artificially romantic vibe is watching those um before sunrise movies with somebody and it's like ethan hawk and i want to say julie delpy i can't remember but they're like wistful romantic like oh these people cross paths and they should be together or whatever i went on a couple of dates with a guy where we watched that on our first date at his place and it was just like is this love or whatever and then a few days later i'm like what the fuck was that very wow. yeah it's intense i have a list of movies that are actual possibilities and uh i would like to have your take on some of them so uh one is howl's moving castle oh yeah good shit yeah what about parasite um i think it was overrated it was good though uh that mm. might be a good example of like a Kind of, I mean, I know most people liked that movie, but it is kind of a fucked up movie. So it's like a good, I guess, test to see the person's reaction. <laughs> I wouldn't watch it on a first date. <laughs> right. Hmm. Have you seen There Will Be Blood? Uh, Yeah, it's been a while. Um, That feels like one of those scissor movies. I don't know if that's a real thing, but yeah. like, uh, I don't really get it. But my boyfriend mm. fucking loves that movie. Yeah, it seems like a dude movie. Like, these are all my choices of movies, as you can tell. It makes me really mad that it's a dude movie and I don't get it. Because I feel like I normally yeah. like dude movies. <laughs> like, my favorite movies tend right. to be, like, Lawrence of Arabia, Master and Commander. There are no women with any speaking lines in these movies. They're solely about brotherhood. But there will be blood. I'm just like, what's happening? <laughs> this guy's an asshole. So I think the thing with those movies, like Master and Commander, is that like there is some kind of sensitivity to those men that shows some kind of a vulnerability. Even Lawrence of Arabia, it's about overcoming struggle or whatever. Whereas There Will Be Blood is like just straight up about like a dude owning like and just being cool. It's like the Dragon Ball Z. Is that what it's supposed to be? Yeah. It's just like a dude being super mega cool and just being powerful and just like and just ruling the world. There is some really <laughs> so, good yeah. competence porn there, which I appreciate, but it, it, I kept getting distracted from it by if I remember it's like everybody else is tearing him down and then the movie kind of portrays him as villainous somehow. But then at the end, he's actually psycho. So I'm just like, what was the point? I don't know. I also don't right. like rise and fall stories in general. I think guys watch that movie and go, this is the perfect life. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the life I want. This is, yeah, I want to be that you guy. Can watch it again. Just being older and drunk and like beating the shit out of some like pompous religious dude. Oh, awesome. actually, though, so yeah, great. yeah. <laughs> so cool. It has um, been a while because I forgot that the pompous religious dude is not his son. Yeah. That yeah, would have yeah, made yeah. for a more interesting film, maybe, if it were. Yeah. The whole son thing was, uh, I think, necessary, but also very strange. Yeah. Okay, so what about Manchester by the Sea? I have not seen that. Is that mm. a romance? I feel like I saw posters no. for it. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's not a romance. What is it? I recommend it. Is it a crime it. thing? It's like the saddest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, God. That sounds grim. It's really sad. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's really sad. And it's really sad, especially because the the main actor is like so stoic, so stoic. And you don't know why he's so stoic. And then you find out why he's so stoic. And you're oh. like, holy cow. Yeah, that's a really good is movie. Is he dying? Is it one of those things? I hate shit like that. Uh, it's, uh, it's a sad <sighs> It's a tragedy film. I didn't even know there was a genre. Jesus. But Okay, so what about The Prestige? Oh, yeah. That's one of those movies that feels to be in the same category as um, Parasite, where it's like kind of good, but it's yeah. also kind of like grim in a way that feels like it's trying to say something about humanity that I don't mm-hmm. buy, but yeah. also it's kind of a great spectacle. I like it. So those were mine. Now yes. here, here are her picks. Uh, she has Notting Hill. I have not seen this. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think, I don't remember if I've seen it actually, but that's one of those mm. like rom-com classics. Guess I'll have to see it. Yeah. Uh, there's Searching. I don't know what that's I even about. I don't know that one either. Mm. Uh, and then there's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I have not seen that actually, and I should remedy it. There's also Pokemon the movie. <laughs> Hell Yeah. The original one? Yeah, the original one. Wholesome. (laughs) And then she also wrote Anchorman and the John Wick movies. Anchorman is one of my favorites. Holy shit, that's so good. Um, Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I watched the first John Wick movie Mm -hmm. and it it was like a nice ballet. Mm. But I kind of had the same feelings I do about ballet where I'm like, that was kind of boring, but kind of beautiful. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take. What was the story for the first time you saw Anchorman? Oh, Jesus. Uh, when did that come out? It had to have been in like high school, right? Long time right? ago. Um, yeah. It was um, like 2005. Weird. Yeah, I usually have pretty vivid memories of my viewings of movies. I'm pretty sure that was one of the movies I watched with some of my um, my guy friends from middle school. Uh-huh. I went to an all-girls high school, so like I would rarely get to see them. And when we did see each other, we'd usually go watch a movie or play video games or whatever. So I think it was yeah. like a fond memory. But also, um, I just really like the 70s aesthetic a lot um and i think at the time i had a huge crush on paul rudd so it was just like you know that's what it was really about just the mustaches and the sideburns and the butterfly collars it was really fun the thing that's interesting to me is the girl that like i my the first girl i ever dated um we had like this, I guess, this weird, tense relationship because I really wanted to be loved and she wasn't that into me, but kind of Oof. felt like she should date me because I was really nice and stuff. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so that was just a, just about the worst dynamic you can hope for. Yeah. And so when we went to go watch that movie, like neither of us laughed at anything. No. I think we were both watching it through like the other person's eyes and just like super uncomfortable so i came out of that theater like this is the worst movie like that was not fun at all and then i watched it like two weeks later with my best friend and we were both dying laughing the entire time oh thank god so it just like it it just like sold me on the idea that how you watch a movie matters just as much as the movie you're watching you know like the you really have to look beyond the the movie itself and I think this is why some movie critics will watch a movie like three or four times. Yeah, that's super true. Or if you have like a weird set of expectations or something, it can ruin the whole thing for you. Yeah, expectations are are such a mess. 
when you realize like they're the enemy, life's a lot easier. Yeah, you're probably right. That sounds like that ties into the the time is fake type of thing. All truths stem from time not being real. I buy that. Every time I say that, everybody thinks I'm joking. I'm I'm very complete. I uh, promise I am 100% serious. I mean, that really doesn't sound like that crazy a take to me. It's just like, I mean, I guess when I think when I was in like middle school at some point, I spent like too much time thinking about this. And I was like, time is just a measurement of change. And I thought that was really deep. And then I just, you know, proceeded to not do anything with it. But like. Here's here's a quick thought experiment because we're already on the topic and I'm always chomping at the bit to talk about this. But like you can imagine the um, the direction of time or change and you can imagine it moving through time twice the speed or four times the speed. And the question I ask is how different would that feel if the nature of time itself was moving faster? Mm-hmm. But like everything you do is but everything's the same well. the events are the same or uh, but i mean is it like um like i have half as much time to get through my day and do everything or is it like i move at double speed too right so it's like you yeah. have half the time but you move at double speed it would feel identical there'd be no way exactly. to tell the difference yeah and so the next step is how would it feel if time was actually unzipping rather than like zipping in the direction we we feel it's zipping like if it was moving backwards what would it what would it feel like right yeah it's the idea of a direction for time right i don't even think is necessarily coherent although it's like right. uh, effects do stack right like there are there is causality but well in physics everything is symmetrical is it so really? like yeah. At the, yeah at the atomic level actually yeah that makes sense it's it's 100 percent symmetrical so for instance the concept of entropy is is not actually true at like the the quantum level um that's only true at the system level so that like when two things are interacting that interaction looks like exactly the same in either in either direction Uh, i buy that actually so the point is that if time was moving in the opposite direction it would feel exactly the same i see yeah yeah because causality would basically you would just apply causality to the opposite direction so it would be like i um have a hangover therefore i will drink or whatever Right. I begin to ask, why does now feel like now? And now feels like now because all nows feel like now. So like the five-year-old me that was experiencing that now experiences that as now because that that's literally now. So the concept that time is moving forward or whatever is actually just an artifact of the fact that all now feels like now and knowledge happens to accumulate toward increased what I would call entropy. Mm-hmm. Right. So the universe is just basically like um, a material. One side is this like high energy, you know, big bang spot. And then the other side is like the, the depth of the universe. But it's just one material and it all feels like now to everything within it. Right. Yeah. So time, the, the concept that like time is moving forward is just an artifact of the fact that knowledge can only be accumulated in one direction. Ta-da! Yeah. No, I mean, that all makes sense to me. Yeah, I think the only part where it gets practically difficult is where you start thinking about like, like deadlines or whatever, or, you know, things like I have to feed myself. I guess you can try to think of it in terms of, um, am I hungry now? What do you mean deadlines? Just like, uh, I, I guess like if then sort of situations, right? Where like some effort has to be taken on your undertaken on your part in order to have the result that you want. If you want your next now to not be bad. Yeah, this is all kind of like pageantry or or we're all just observing all of that happening, including the desire itself and, and all of that. 
which I think is obviously true. Like this whole, like everybody can kind of be like, oh yeah, the world is actually completely deterministic, but I feel this volition. So we must have volition. Mm. And then we, so we're just defining agency as being sufficiently tight knots of causality such that volition has a certain kind of, of feeling. All of that, I think we're, this is actually like the most philosophical we've ever gotten on this podcast but i feel like oh all of, <laughs> i feel like all of that volition and everything is just a tool for knowledge to be accumulated in one direction all that's really just to say that like the thing that could extend itself like further throughout this material is what knowledge is um like cracks in in a piece of glass or an ice or something this knowledge that tends to survive behaves a certain way and and that's it like that's that's consciousness that's everything um it's it's super reductive and super difficult to talk about but it's really just what allows us to be here i think i understand what you're getting at but i'm yeah. not entirely sure like it sounds like you're just talking about like knowledge is consciousness or sort of i should probably say that like i'm just making all this stuff up like i literally i didn't read any of this in a book i just yeah, looked yeah. in my experience and was Fuck like books. what's time <laughs> like it's literally me just sitting and being like what is time yeah like a child and this is about as far as i've gotten but it's really hard to be anxious about anything for instance when you're just like oh like time is not real and like we're, it's just a material and now of course feels like now and because the now where i'm dying it's just like of course that too feels like now so there's nothing really much to worry about i don't have control i mean this is exactly the question that um anxiety trying desperately to preserve itself would ask but how right. do you motivate yourself to do anything if that's if nothing if if now is all there is and if nothing else matters or if nothing at all matters like i assume you're still feeding yourself and going to work what that looks like is I just trust myself. Mm. And so like if I need to pay bills, I don't need to worry about paying the bills. I know I'm going to pay the bills. Like, And if I'm hungry, I recognize that I'm hungry. And if I can't eat at that moment, I'm not worried about it. But it's it's like all of these things actually take care of themselves. We tend to think that we need to be anxious about all of these things in order to get them done. But it's yeah. simply not true. It, it's like, I will do everything I need to do because I trust that I will do everything that I typically do in order to get them done. And if I don't do that, kind of like in Anchorman where he doesn't buy, or is it Step Brothers, where he's in like Step Brothers, um, where he doesn't have like toilet paper or something and he has to like figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Right. So in fact, we can just figure it out as we go. And if we just have complete trust, that in any situation, the now that we experience will be fully equipped to handle that situation, then we don't have to experience the current now in a state of constant anxiety. I do think that's probably generalizable to a lot more people than are able or willing to believe it, but it's also probably not generalizable to everybody. I don't know. It's almost like a state you should strive for. It, it feels like the idea is that you have almost this like the animal self that is that is striving to survive and it's going to be doing its own thing and it's going to be surviving regardless of whether or not the conscious pilot is manually operating every like micromanaging it um so you might as well not micromanage which even if you have poor executive function is probably a healthy way to think about it unless your problem is that you like have no anxiety and also no executive function and also don't get anything done ever <laughs> 
Well, there, there are a few facts about this. And one of them is, for instance, the awareness that a lot of our like anxiety and fear is intended for a much scarier environment than we currently live. <laughs> yeah. And that like acceptance and being tranquil and all of that stuff was at one point not very adaptive. But now I think it's increasingly adaptive because if you can be tranquil and cool headed, this gives you a, a set of certain kind of social tools that you wouldn't otherwise have and you could get wins and have a happier life and have the, the life you want without the threat of punishment that one is constantly inflicting on themselves via fear and anxiety. I kind of almost wonder whether it's the opposite in some sense, like whether the anxiety is a weird artifact of having this luxury to not be anxious. Um, because usually if there's an actual serious life-threatening problem that has to be dealt with, that's when I'm like the most calm that I ever mm. am and I can take things slowly and it's okay. Um, because then it's like, everything is very clear. Suddenly it's very much like this is, I have control over these specific things and no control over those specific things. And it's fine. But the rest of the time when there's no imminent threat and it's just the <clears throat> infinite realm of possibilities open to me and, and I'm not in any kind of danger, that's when anxiety sinks in and I'm just like, fuck. Yeah. That's a really good take i was on the podcast with teddy rackavel and he said something similar that like people need difficulties and problems and suffering and he said that like depression and the stuff we inflict upon ourselves is because in order to be human we must be going through these problems and when they are not put on us we put them on ourselves and I, I don't think that fully explains the spectrum of, you know, why people get depressed or um, experience, you know, internal suffering or, um, you know, meaning crisis and all this stuff. But I, I feel like it's an important uh, thing to consider. But there's another thing that you were talking about with, with anxiety, and that had to do with being neurotic, that I think that, um, like... I don't know if you've ever done psychedelics, but I believe that psychedelics are very beneficial for people that are not neurotic and they're oh. actually dangerous for people that are highly neurotic. Oh, no. I've been wanting to try psychedelics. Perhaps I should avoid them. It, well, I'll, I'll put it this way, and this makes a lot of sense to me, that if there are people that are capable of letting go of control of their surroundings and of their feelings. And so, for instance, let's say somebody gets sick and they can just be like, oh, I'm sick. I give up. I'm just going to be sick now. Screw everything. I'm not <laughs> going to be productive. And then they just kind of move through it and they're, they're not too miserable versus the person that gets sick and they're, they're just like, oh, I really need to be productive and I can't be and I don't have the energy. Why well, don't I have the energy? Why is this happening to me? Like that latter person. <laughs> Calling me out so yeah. hard right now. But this is yeah. really serious that there are papers on this, like psychedelics being more dangerous for people that are neurotic because wow. you're essentially having like the your power over your like salience and consciousness rested from you in a kind of way and for people that have a loose grip on it they're like oh it's gone but people that have a strong grip on it it's like torn from their hands and there's a deep sense of loss and fear whoa but basically if someone is highly neurotic there is a chance of trauma 
Interesting. Is it mitigated by microdosing? I have actually heard of some people microdosing in order to actually kind of like weaken their their yeah. neuroticness and to kind of like train their ability to deal with the loss of control over time, like increasing dosages and stuff. And I that's probably smart just so you're not going from zero to like totally tripping balls. Yeah, I would I would say maybe ramp it up. Um but I think that a lot of people that chill psychedelics, it's because it gives them like this deep, meaningful spiritual experience that is really cool for them. And they don't realize that not all people experience the world similarly. So they want everybody to feel this way, not realizing that that feeling is not necessarily always good for everyone all the time. Yeah, that's super good to know. I mean, yeah. I've been more interested in microdosing than in, I, I guess it's, I don't know if it's macrodosing, but just normal dosing. But yeah, I've been, you know, it's on my list of things to try. But this comes back to what we were talking about earlier about me being like, oh, you can just kind of drop anxiety, drop worry. And I can actually get to the point where I am, for instance, sitting here speaking to you or I'll be typing anything. And I'm literally just kind of like watching the movie of my life from con complete equanimity with nothing going on in my head. And I am just enjoying the, the kind of um, my experience becomes like a fire and it's, it's like you're sitting there staring at the fire and that is the, my complete experience, but I'm doing everything. So I could be doing push-ups, And for me, that's the same experience as if I was staring into a fire. Um, but the, the point is like that that's, that's possible, but I don't know if, if a person is, if they're unable to let go of their neuroticism, which is their defense of the self, yeah, then I don't know how they could actually let let go of like their ego in a kind of way and just access um, what's really just going on here. Because the ego is tied to everything going on in the past, everything going on in the future. If we need to manage that all the time, if if we need to like use the past now to make the future better, then we can never just here now that's interesting because i've been thinking a little bit lately about like the importance of narrative for people's i don't know psychology or like life direction or whatever but it almost sounds like if you're going about i guess killing the ego or letting it go or whatever that uh -huh. like you can't really have a narrative if you're if you're right. just living in the now right like is that how it feels from right. the inside so what a lot of people talk about is like counterfactuals. So for instance, people will think, oh man, this is bad. And then the answer will be like, oh, well, think about how much worse it could be and then you'll be happier. <laughs> hmm. And people use these tools to get themselves out of delusions. But what they're actually doing is they're using gentler delusions to get themselves out of the worst delusions or the delusions that feel worse. This feels better when we do this i mean this pretty consistently feels better so this is like a practice that people want that want to get happier do if you can just let go of all of that stuff then you don't need to delude yourself so let's say somebody just said something mean to you right and you might have a tightness in your chest you can literally just go i have a tightness in my chest otherwise i'm just chilling here life's great mm. this tightness is not a big deal like it's a physical phenomenon yeah. and not like you're not in danger. It's not important. Right. It's like having a cough. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, and that's just like something a person can do. And it's, it's, it's cool. And I'm like, 
cultivating my ability to do this more and more and more. But um, I think this is really important. And I've been trying to figure out how to communicate this in a way that's useful and, and not absolutely tiresome. It, I think one thing that there's like an extra layer maybe in between or in the way of, of getting to the point of um, just acknowledging physical sensations as physical sensations and moving on with your life. And it, it feels very much to me that um, anxiety and I imagine lots of other uh, unpleasant psychological phenomenon are almost their own like entities with like a, a will to survive and they do anything they can to like promote their own existence. Um, and so it seems like it's easy enough maybe to notice like, okay, I, there's a tightness in my chest. I will let it go. If you don't have this, like the, almost this person yelling in your ear, like, but if you let it go, something bad is going to happen. <laughs> and if you try to tell me to be quiet, something worse will happen and that type of thing. And so I think maybe like learning to quiet that or to eliminate it somehow <laughs> might be a step in between. Do you know anything about IFS? I've heard some about it, but I haven't like read really anything or played with it at all. Yeah, I'm not a pro at this. Um, I've only heard about it. But basically in IFS, what they would tell you to do is to talk to that person and respect it and mm -hmm. like listen to it and say like, thank you. I know you're trying to help me, um, but you don't have to worry anymore. I can take care of you. So nice. you don't have to take care of me anymore. And then you can just talk to that part of yourself and think of it really as another individual that lives inside of you and just treat it with love and kindness. And then it doesn't like dominate your life so much, but I'm not, I'm not an IFS specialist. It's really interesting, but I, I would say, you know, everybody else should do a lot more work on that than I have not dug into it that much. It sounds like you haven't needed it. Like you bypassed it. I've, I've been struggling with this concept a little bit. And um, I talked to Karma Custodian about this a little bit. But the strange thing is that um, there's like levels of egoness, and you can't just kind of be without ego all the time. Be, you, you're just going to choose not to. So I'll give you an example. If you had a child and your child died, you could just be here in the moment and be like experiencing what's here right now, but you probably wouldn't want to like you you would want to grieve and you would want to um feel your ego in some way and so like that becomes a choice though like um instead of having everything foist upon you all the time you recognize that instead of being fully tranquil and, and content you can just kind of dip into whatever's going on and you can be a little bit egotistical or selfish or whatever, if that's what you need. And that's why it exists, right? That's why egotism exists is so that like you can survive so that you can switch into that. Um, and so at, at first it's really, really weird, but then you get to a point where you just trust yourself that like, if you need to snap into action and go into animal survival mode, it's going to happen. Like you don't have to worry about it. Cool. Yeah. And so this animal survival mode versus like just acting appropriately, which is, for instance, if your child dies, then you're going to grieve. Um, you don't really have to worry about that. Like it's going to happen. You'll be fine. Um, which is I'm, I'm sorry for the like the super dark example. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> but um, this is how all my examples go. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like your memories are there as a library of information that you can access if you need them or want them, as opposed to it just being like random memories getting airdropped into your brain at inappropriate moments and then taking over your current experience. It's a different way of interacting with the world because you're you're coming from the default mode of just being here watching what's going on, feeling what's going on. And sometimes I'll even like turn off music or turn off podcast just because I'm really enjoying just just this and it's great. Um, it's just like, it's, it's at the right level of root belief. And I think that's why it's so tough because we're actually just here a huge portion of the time. Everybody is. So it's like, if you're playing a game or you're having a conversation with me or if you're doing any number of things, it's so easy to get lost right now. Like while I'm talking to you, I'm not thinking about, you know, doing the laundry or what I'm doing for a week from now. I'm just talking right. to you. We're already right here. It's not that hard, but a lot of people don't realize that like, this is what's real. That five seconds from now and five seconds ago are completely 100% gone and only live on to the degree to which we can remember them. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm just ranting at this point. I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. Um, I don't know if this is relevant, but I tend to think of the future, and I guess you know this applies to the past too, but it's less like useful. Um, but as sort of uh, like the farther into the future it is, the less likely any event or any person is likely to happen or exist or whatever, and so you just discount it more and more the farther it is. So I guess that's less of a cliff and more of like a gradual slope, but it might make more sense to think of it as more of a cliff. I don't know. I think a lot of people see it as like a linear drop off such that like three seconds from now is, let's say, a third as real as now is, but it's it's way, way, way less real. Yeah. Okay. So the way a memory feels... Like, let's say you remember eating chocolate. For me, the memory of eating chocolate is not even like a tenth of the experience of actually eating chocolate. Yeah. Right? But that's true for everything. So that's true for my memory of the beginning of this conversation, that it's like very, very quiet, vague. I can barely remember it. So it has this this phantom-like quality. It, it, it's barely real at all. And this is true for all of the past. And this is true for all of the future. So I might know that I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and go to work or something to some degree. But the degree to which that is real is really, really, really light. Yeah. So I guess the the point is that like if you can just trust yourself in the now and appreciate that the now is actually super, super vivid compared to everything else, then we stop really focusing on the stuff in the past or the stuff in the future that's just not as vivid and exciting as what's here right now because what we're experiencing now is something that has never happened and will never happen again and it has this incredible beauty that is innate and inherent and divine the only problem is that we're not accessing it the easiest way for me to like i guess conceptualize it or like feel it in a way that seems uh potentially I don't know, real, I guess, is to mm. to almost feel as though there's like a, well, I suppose it would be a monkey, return to monkey, uh, but like some <laughs> sort of, you know, like an animal that like you are at root an animal that just is there to like breathe, eat, shit, die, whatever, like, but you're uh-huh. just there, you don't, you're not like head empty, no thoughts, whatever. And then you have these extra layers of like, you know, internal monologue, although I guess not everybody has that and all of these, you know, and personal yeah. narrative and memories and all of those things. But but this idea that like you can trust the animal to do the thing that it's good at, which is to keep itself alive and everything else is just gravy. 
Yeah, it's like the appreciation of everything as it is in its own place, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the anxiety serves a purpose, and it's there for certain instances, but we don't need to give it as much power as maybe we we usually do. Yeah. I think it's about not getting too wrapped up in delusions and to just kind of organizing one's priorities in such a way that gets a person what they really want. And we're already designed to get what we want, right? And like, as far as like mating is concerned and status and all of that stuff. And I think that while we're already doing all of that stuff, it's fine to actually just say, I want happiness. And so many people are so uncomfortable with the idea of them actually openly wanting happiness because they feel like it's selfish or something. Jesus. Right. But like, imagine if, if you were just honest and be like, oh, I want to be happy. So uh, this is how I plan to, you know, put intent into the direction I want to live my life. And then actually pursuing that in the same way that we're pursuing feeding ourselves every day. Mm-hmm. And it would just just totally transforms your life. So I have two questions about sure. I think some of the things you were saying. So one was the idea that like memories is kind of fuzzy and feels much less real than, you know, the now. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that that's really different for some people, especially people with like an eidetic memory. Mm. And I'm sure there are just people who have these like vivid or, or such vivid, um, I don't know, what's I guess the opposite of aphantasia is just fantasia or hyperfantasia. People with hyperfantasia, sure. I'm sure, could just deposit themselves in a memory and feel like it's real. And it, it seems like it'd be much more difficult for them then to to slip into the experience of the now as as the now. That's possible. Yeah. I don't know about anybody else's experience. That's kind of yeah. the cool thing is that like, I can't tell anyone how to live or what's good <laughs> or anything like that, even though I did just write about virtue quite a lot on Twitter. But I can't, right, I can't really tell anybody what their life should be like. Like that's super um, presumptive. And like the, the truth is that we don't know really anything. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we're always changing our minds and we're changing as people and, and all of that. So I can't tell anybody else what their experience is going to be like. And this is why I tell people, um, don't trust the Buddha. Like, don't trust <laughs> Jesus. They, they died a long time ago and they were talking to a group of people in a society that is no longer around. Not only is it no longer around, we don't know much about it. So whatever context they were speaking in. It is entirely divorced from what we're going through now. Now, that doesn't mean it's not Lindy. That doesn't mean there isn't some <laughs> wisdom in there for you to interpret. But you got to make it your own. Yeah. If you are putting your experience below the experience of the Buddha, that's like diluted. So you, you should take what the Buddha has done or whatever and look for it in your life. Based. Yeah. But don't like trust authority. Like, come on. You know, yeah. you're the one that's alive. This is your experience. You got to own that shit. Fuck yeah, that's some good manifesto shit. Thank you. That's, that's all I do. <laughs> Balls. I had a thought, and then I somehow got distracted by how good that was. <laughs> shit. That's such a great compliment. Oh, um, people seem to think that it's like the only things that are worth like communicating to each other, or to communicate. The only things worth communicating to an audience are like, um things that everybody should do or like your knowledge about how the world works that's generalizable but i think it's almost the opposite what's actually really important for people to i guess share is their personal 
experiences and their, their phenomenology or whatever, just, uh-huh. just as specifically as possible, because that's the sort of thing where like people's brains are so fucking different. We don't know what generalizes, but you do know sometimes you will come across somebody who has a brain that's very similar to yours, but who has different experiences. And that's incredibly valuable. I a hundred percent agree. Um, I think people don't really do this enough as far as sharing their phenomenology is concerned because if people want to share what they think, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this in the tale of <laughs> me having shared what I thought for the last half hour, but people want to share what they think and not what they feel. That's, I think it's not that important. Like what we think about the world isn't really that important. And if I have any advice to people about looking at right now is like, when you do, you're fully ingrained in it and you don't need to think about it. You know, like you're just, you're just participating with the truth. Yeah. I wish people talked about their feeling. And I also think it's important for people to talk about their general interfacing with the world so that people can match up or contrast it from what they experience. So for instance, a lot of people experience memories in the third person while other people experience memories in the first person. That's a really big difference. (laughs) Yeah. It's fucking bizarre. But people experience the world in wildly different ways. And I think in respecting that, then by talking about these differences and instead of writing off everybody else's differences because they don't match yours, saying like, you know, you're wrong because you think that sanctity is important and I think reduction of harm is important. Like instead of doing all that, we can just be like, oh, cool, we have these differences and that's what makes humans rad. What if we all just did different things and tried to enjoy our lives? Exactly. And then reported back with our findings. Why not just make everybody in the world like you? Wouldn't that be so much more interesting? Fuck Obviously, no. it's it would be shitty if everybody was like me, you know, especially me. Yeah. But... <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> I'd like at least a few people like me. And then uh, everybody else could be different. But I, I'd want to at least know the people who are like me, which is probably why I'm in these like weird rationalist post-rat circles, because there is some weird there's something in everybody in this group mm, that feels yeah. familiar but right. alien to the rest of the world. We're, we're all in a strange way. We're loners or we recognize yep. that we're loners and or that we were like ostracized for some reason. I mean, even Eigen was talking about this on my show about like how he was younger. You, you try to fit into these groups and then you just like he didn't fit in. And I, I think a lot of us had that either because uh, we had a high IQ or, <laughs> <laughs> or like we, we just we, we couldn't communicate. And actually, I think as far as the IQ thing is concerned, I think it's much easier to communicate with somebody who matches to your wavelength or whatever. And I recognize this sometimes with people that are like way smarter with me, too, that I could be something saying something that's like really true, but they're just operating or interpreting it in in like a totally different way, or it's not the game they want to play. Yeah. And so I I think that people playing the game that they want to play and finding other people that want to play that game, that's like what's going on in the in-group. It feels like most people are used to seeing things through the same lens as their peers. And most people in in in-group are used to that not being the case. And so we're much more, I guess, I, I don't even know that it's like we're used to seeing the, things through the same lens as each other. It's more like we're used to having to adopt different lenses um, or having to get along with people who are drastically different from us and don't understand us. So it's just a huge relief to meet other people who are open and able to like see different perspectives. I don't know. That sounds kind of like bullshitty, but yeah, there's just a really high level of openness and it feels like you can say just 
crackpot bullshit and not get looked at funny. Whereas with normal people, I feel like I can say something that feels really reasonable to me and get looked at funny. Yeah. It's almost like what school should be like. Yeah. You know, like imagine if school was just like a community where everybody was kind of basically incentivized to champion diversity and ideas. And that would be like really cool. And you wouldn't have everybody studying the same exact thing. (laughs) Right. Memorizing the same handful of trivia. I mean, the other communities that I've been a part of, there was always this, uh, these status games people would play and they would get clicky and um, everybody would get political. And so, so there was always political talk and which is pretty common everywhere, you know, from Facebook to Instagram. Yep. And um, the fact that politics is not important to us, I think that's a huge unifier in that, like if somebody's really conservative or really liberal, the fact that we just kind of set some ground rules about respecting one another, I think increases the cohesion that we can experience to a great degree. And I think it's really valuable for community building. It's depressing to me that some people viewed that as a threat. Like if you're not talking about politics, then you're drawing political lines or whatever. And it's like, no, you're just making it easier to like, I don't know, just get to know people as people and not as just like monkeys in desperate survival mode yeah at work people fortunately don't talk about politics too much but you know they'll be making conversations like oh did you hear about this happening and i'll i'll say no they're like (laughs) what do you mean and i was like oh i don't read the news they're like what do you mean you don't read the news i'm like i do not interface with news at all i don't watch it on television i don't read it on the internet i just don't interface with it i've decided not to do that with my energy and they they're like (laughs) aghast they're like grossed out they're like but how like this stuff is important and i'm like "Eh, okay yeah you know but they're like yeah but what what if something really important happens and i'm like you're gonna tell me (laughs) right right. (laughs) don't worry i'll find out (laughs) how the fuck is it that this entire group of people who pays no attention to the news found out about covid like a solid month or two before anybody else right that makes no sense to me (laughs) if the news is that important anyway i don't know yeah, I don't think it's that. It's it's just the Colosseum. Yeah. Gross, terrible TMZ-like stuff of just gossiping gossip over <laughs> stuff. I guess there's the unifying thing that, like, everybody can talk about Trump because, like, Trump became that television show that people talked about in the 90s that everybody watched. Yeah. That became, like, that's Trump now because Netflix is, and Hulu have diversified so much that people don't watch the same thing anymore. God, that's depressing. But now that thing is politics. I wonder if there's anything that could replace that. A lot of people have been talking about like localism and just being like oh, hyper local. I'm super into that idea. Yeah. So I don't even know what that means. Whatever your community is, whether it's, you know, in your location or not, maybe having some common. Uh, well, I guess we kind of have that in the rationalist scene where you've got these like touchstones, even if you don't read them or whatever. But it's like just right, knowing right. about the existence of like less wrong and slate star codex and like meaningness. The borderers, etc. The what? Borderers. I actually don't know what that is. Okay, so uh, Sel- Celine Telechia. Moon. She's, yeah, in her profile, she says she's a token borderer. Oh, yeah, I never understood that. Okay, so this is actually pretty cool. Now I'm going to, after saying that I was based for having never read like Slate Star Codex, <laughs> I'm about to tell you about Slate Star Codex. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, so uh, Scott Alexander wrote about Albion Seed, uh, which is a book. And oh. in that book, they talk about. Uh, basically like the four peoples that created America and how their remnants are still alive today. 
and they were the Cavaliers. And I'm going to, I might screw this up, but the Cavaliers were like the plantation owners. And then you had the Quakers, which were like the friends. So um, William Penn. And then you had the Puritans. Um, when we still see a lot of the Puritanism as far as, you know, the beliefs of, of you know, the sanctity of the family and all of that stuff. And then you also have the borderers. The borderers are the most in- interesting of the lot. Now, the Scotch and the Irish had fought for a really long period of time for like hundreds of years. And over those hundreds of years, the people that lived on that war-torn border became especially vicious and they had a lot of blood feuds and they were very pro-gun and militarization (laughs) and they were very um, racist and quick to identify people that were other than them. Is that where like the no true Scotsman thing came about? (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, I'm confused though about where the border is. Were they like crossing the ocean or did one like, like, I don't know shit about history. Did they like? It was just like the, the border on the on the of the conflict. I don't know where this was geographically. Yeah. No. Okay. I'm gonna have to read this or at yeah. least read the summary. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So, so they're into guns and when the Scotch and the Irish stopped fighting, they had all of these people that were like insanely violent and <laughs> <laughs> and just a mess yes. from from like hundreds of years of fighting or whatever, and they wanted to get rid of them. So. They invited them to go to America. And so (laughs) a lot of them went to America, but they didn't have a home. Like they didn't have anybody that would accept them. So the Quakers accepted them and said, oh, you can stay with us. Because the Quakers believed that like there was light in humanity and everybody is worthy of love and like everybody is redeemable. And then they ended up writing that the borderers are like the scum of the scum. They're they're completely irredeemable. So what they, what they ended up doing was like, get out. And this is like a hundred thousand people. And they took like a hundred thousand people and just said, you can have Appalachia. You can just have the mountains. Oh, is that why I love Appalachia so much? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. That makes sense actually. So the borderers went into Appalachia and this is how you get the, like the people firing guns at weddings Mm -hmm. that have blood feuds and like, yeah, so you, all of this like hillbilly stuff—that's where it all comes from. Holy shit! I thought right? Moon was based before, but this is doubly so. Yes. Right. So, so Moon. I, I assume that token border would just mean that like you're the one borderer in a sea of Quakers and Cavaliers and Puritans. <laughs> Wait, she she did post she did post her DNA once. Oh no shit! Yeah, that's a new fun uh, discourse for the uh, the timeline post DNA. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it is fun. It is fun. We should get we should get t- together, have a party where we all share our DNA. We're just going to be appalled by how white everybody is, though. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> I was really horrified by this at one point because, like, I grew up in L.A., so I'm used to there being, like, in my elementary school, I think white people might have been the minority or it was about 50-50. Um, uh-huh. And, like, the first time I was in a group of, of primarily or exclusively white people, it was sometime in college, and we all looked around at each other. There were, like, 10 of us, and we were like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, but I realized that, like, actually a lot of Twitter are Europeans, which, like, okay, that makes a lot more sense now. We are – I usually do, like, one hour or a little more than one hour, and we're over <laughs> oh, two. Oh, wow, which, yeah, all right. <laughs> which which I, I never do. Uh, this has been This has been a lot of fun. We really went all over the place with this. Likewise, I quite enjoyed it. I did have one question I wanted to ask. Sure. If like, how do you 
if the now is all that exists, how do you uh-huh. not do things like put your hand on like in a fire or whatever? Or do you just not have impulses like that? Here's the thing is that like everything that protects you from putting your hand in a fire is still there. So, mm. so memories, for instance, um, I still experience memories. So memories are part of the now. So memories do have this realness. However, they only have a realness as memories. So I am not deluded in believing that they are true. Yeah. It's kind of like watching television. Like I, I know that this, these events kind of happened, but I, I don't really believe that they happened in any meaningful way. I'll put it this way, that we interact with the ideas of people. And you, you see this happen all the time, that people will interact with you when they're interacting with you. They're really interacting with their idea of you. Yeah. And they don't realize that in one day, they could just re- like treat you like shit and suddenly your relationship will be completely different immediately. <laughs> or they could treat you really, really well. And somebody that you used to hate, you could actually become best friends with. And like this, that's the the true possibility of the now is that if you can just let go of all of your ideas and just cultivate acceptance now, then like everything can change and things are way more flexible than we, we tend to think they are because we have this idea of, of like this mountain of things gaining and gaining and gaining importance when in reality, those are, they're, they're really just really quiet and um, very flexible. Nice. It's almost yeah so to answer your question about the fire it's like i don't put my hand in my fire because why would i want to feel burning right now i think i guess the thing that makes the most sense to me is that like my impulse to put my hand in you know like if there's a flame to put my finger in a flame is probably mostly the pilot and not the animal and if i were Mm. living in the now the pilot would not be directing me to do that (laughs) but i don't know maybe next time i come across a flame i might just stick my finger in for a second just to see sure the intention to put your hand in the flame, it's like some of that is felt now. Like, it's not that you're deluding yourself about what you're feeling now regarding your fear or whatever. Um, so you're not just saying like, oh, I'm going to ignore all of these things that are in any way connected to the past or the future. It's just recognizing them for what they are, yeah. which is like, if, if somebody is usually rude to me, I don't need to turn that into a belief that they are a rude person right now. Actually, what's his face? Um, do, do, do Ricky Gervais said something where like he quoted like Churchill or something and Churchill was saying something about like patriotism or something. I, I don't remember. And somebody responded to the tweet with like, oh, didn't you know he was a racist or oh, didn't you know he was a misogynist? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Ricky responded, um, well, he's not a misogynist in that tweet. Yeah. He's not a misogynist in that quote. When we think that each person is one thing, then we're being really, really deluded because in fact, I am so much different than I was a year ago. I am so much different than I was three years ago. I'm so much different than I was five years ago. So when we have this consistent perception that because somebody was rude to us on a hard day three months ago, that they're still that guy. It's like, we're, we're really just torturing ourselves with these, with these fake delusions. Yeah. That's a really good point that's my main defense against ever getting canceled it's just like i can't remember what i said five minutes ago i'm not the same person i was five seconds ago so like (laughs) yeah but it's helpful to remember that for other people too it's also i think um that as far as like getting canceled is concerned i was afraid of that kind of idea um like with dating and everything like oh what if you're dating someone and then you know, they're either crazy or there there's some kind of misunderstanding oh, and they ruin your life. And I'm yep. like, that's a real fear. Um, but now I'm like, well, you know, maybe that fear is valuable. And what you should gain from that is that like maybe just have relationships that matter. Yeah. 
that <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. Life's life's really simple if you let it be simple. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for letting me uh, go off like this. No, it's been very interesting, yeah. and I think I'm gonna try to remember uh, if I think that if I keep the animal sort of framework in mind, that might actually be really helpful to me. I had a coworker that came up to me, and she was really frustrated. And she kind of pulled me aside and she was basically just like, I don't know what's going on with you today, but you really got to pick it up. Jesus. Right. And like rude. Yeah. And I just looked at her and I said, are you okay? What's going on? Yeah. And she got frustrated and she was like, the manager's blah, blah, blah. And they're expecting me to do this and it's not really my responsibility. And like, she, she just vented everything. And I just said, you know, you're right. That's not your responsibility. They should not be expecting you to do that. Do you want a hug? And she was like, no, no, I don't want a hug. I was like, okay, that's fine. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard day. And, you know, you noticed that. And, and, you know, thank you for, for seeing me in that way. I just want to say, you know, I appreciate your work, blah, blah, blah. Wow. And like, it's very easy to become defensive in that moment. Right. It's very easy to just be like, what me? I'm I'm doing everything I possibly can. What the hell are you doing? Right? Like that's yeah. e that's easy to do, but it's really a lot harder to see somebody that's actually suffering and to just kind of listen for the suffering and just be like, what's wrong? Right? Because if you can actually come from a root core belief that there's nothing wrong, and then you see that everybody else has just this this struggle that they're working through, and then you don't feel as offended by anything anyone does because they're really only contending with their own problem. Um, so that's how I see the animal. So like, if I see that tightness or something, I just try to treat it like a kind, like, like I would a, a crying child or a hurt child or an angry child. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. With other people, it, it almost seems like it's, it's really hard to do something like that without coming across as patronizing. Maybe I'm not worried about that though. Yeah. Like, they, they can see <laughs> me that cool. way. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. They can do that. Yeah. It's like, um, okay, so I did tweet this thing. I tweeted this. I, I wasn't sure if I want to talk about it on the podcast, but I wrote, virtue is not the result of rational analysis. Responses to this are invariably, that's not what my analysis concludes. Somebody responded and they said, who are you to, to tell other people what virtue is? And like, I just didn't respond. I thought about, like, I thought about it, but I was like, I just didn't respond because I'm like, I'm nobody. I'm just a series of experiences. Like literally the feeling of my foot being on the ground is simply, if it's not my feeling, I don't own that feeling. It is just, it is experienced. That's it. So I'm, I'm not anyone, you know, I'm just tweeting. <laughs> like I'm, right. just, I'm just fucking having fun. Like I don't give a shit. I don't even believe any response. of this is true. I'm just yeah. tweeting, bro. Right. <laughs> right. I would have been fucking pissed, man. Yeah. Yeah. You, he's interacting with something, right? Which is that. Yeah. Something that's not yeah. anything to do with you. Not everybody, but a lot of people will hear what I am saying and think that I'm status signaling. They'll think, oh, he's saying this because he wants people to think he experiences this, which is Ugh. it's a sad way of interacting with the world. If, if you just think people are saying, I guess, lofty or spiritual things just for attention, especially because yeah. I'm not the kind of guy that's like a proper opinion or something that's like out here. Trying to <laughs> get attention or yeah, fuck. That was a flashback. People, I don't know. Projection's a fucking bitch. People get so butthurt yeah. about, and, yeah, and they make so many assumptions, especially based on like a single tweet. It's like, have you looked at 
any of this person's other tweets. Like, have you seen the shit post? Like, maybe you should consider that this is a well-rounded person and not just somebody with a stick up their ass. It's like, okay, my last nine tweets were jokes. Maybe this one's a joke, too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But, but, uh, of course, I I also get that people aren't actually reading my whole, like, tweet field and, like, kind of getting who I am as a person, right? So you just got to see each each individual interaction as it is. It's just so much less fun to assume the worst of everybody, though. Like, what the fuck is the point of that? They, and for, first of all, like, when I'm I'm talking about this stuff, I'm just kind of riffing. Like, I don't know the answer. But um, if I were to play with the idea, it's that they developed this defense mechanism in order to protect themselves from egotistical people. And it's just yeah. it, they're still running that software in, in an environment that they don't need to. Speaking of virtues, I think one of the greatest virtues is just willingness to be hurt by people in those ways. It's true. Yeah. It's it's hard to think about the extreme cases, especially because you don't know. Right. And um, I, when Eigen was talking to Celine, he had something that I've been thinking a lot about where um celine was talking about how she's always trying to prepare for the problems of the future mood yeah and so like she'd be reading into an interaction in their relationship and she was like well what if this comes up again 10 years from now and eigen was like well that sounds like a good 10 years right and so that so that like inversion of like we don't need to spend 10 years preventing the one mistake we could just spend the 10 years together you know, like that, yeah. that inversion, that's like a really, like a really good inversion. And it, and it gets down to the fact that like anxiety and, and fear and all these things that we we're opting into um, can poison the moment. And this is also just true of rumination on, on the past and everything um, that we could just literally just cultivate awe for everything that's going on right now. Like how many conversations am I going to have with you ever? Not a lot, probably. And like a lot of people are like, oh, no, we're going to become best friends and talk all the time. Probably not. And yeah. that's, it's like the fact that that's kind of sad and and it's it's whatever it is, but it allows me to be more here. And so I try to imagine these conversations as like, I might never get this chance again. Um, so that's kind of always true all the time. And just coming from that point of view of like, now is the only chance I have to do whatever this is, is, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Don't worry about potential future fuck ups that are going to have consequences rippling over the next several decades. The likelihood is low. I mean, they will, everything is slowly building into whatever the future is. And like, I kind of feel that weight of like, don't fuck up because I'm dating this girl who's fucking phenomenal and incredible. And we haven't met yet. And when you haven't met somebody in for a while, there there is this tension or whatever because it's it's very fragile. Like they can change their mind on you because they they don't have that interaction to rely on in their memory. Like their memory mm-hmm. of speaking to you and all the texts you send and all that is is actually very very weak. It's much weaker than interacting with somebody. Well, when you're actually participating with somebody and you get their their smell and their chemistry. Oh their, yeah, that's the true. feeling of their body and the look of their face. You know. I still have pretty vivid memories of when I was like video chatting with a guy in another country that I had a huge crush on and it yeah. didn't feel like there was definitely a lot missing from those interactions, yeah. but it, the like the feeling of it was still really strong. But mm. uh, speaking of which, though, have you exchanged, have you mailed each other shirts in the grand tradition of um, Lisa and Onio? No, but oh. we are meeting up in two weeks. 
Oh, right. Yeah, you so, may as well just do that. Then. Yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to. I hope you have a ridiculous amount of fun. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. But uh, but this was a lot of fun, Goblin. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for, for hanging out. Thanks, man. Yeah, have a good night. I will night. talk to you on the timeline. I will. I will see you there. Much love. What an da-na, incredible da-na, episode. Da-na, Holy cow. To listen for more, check me out on becomingcreature.substack.com. Thank you to Four Shaper for the art. Thank you to Frank IV and Murphy Chicken for the music. Thank you for listening. I love you all. Goodbye. Da-na-na.